you. This is your radio station. Really. Literally. You become a member with a $25 pledge. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK or pledge securely online at KPFK. Dot org And once again, yeah, get Malcolm and Martin for a $100 pledge or a pledge at any amount. Get yourself a t-shirt, tote bag, or mug with the KPFK logo for a $50 pledge. Uh, each of those will get all three for $150. All right, thanks a lot. And that's Think Outside the Cage. They'll be back next week at 10. Stay tuned now for Beneath the Surface, KPFK Los Angeles. <laughs> Don't forget that number, 818-985-5735 or online at kpfk.org. Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we present a talk with the Chilean writer and activist Pablo Abufom that took place on February 23rd at UCLA, sponsored by the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History, in collaboration with the Political Sociology of the Global South Working Group. Pablo Abufom was a participant in the social protest movement of October 2019 and has been on this program many times to discuss and analyze those events in Chile and everything that followed. In this talk, Pablo attempts to explain larger political and social phenomena on a global scale from the Latin American experience, considering the wave of revolts between 2018 and 20, and then he looks at the rise of neo-fascism everywhere, with Argentina as the most recent case. Pablo asks, what can we learn from these revolts that took place in Latin America in the last five years? And he admits it's a tragic question, because we ask it after being defeated, or at least after the revolts were paralyzed by the power of the ruling elites of our countries, he says, amid the acute pandemic crisis of COVID-19. My extended comments on Pablo's talk follow his analysis of what moved people into the streets to struggle for a dignified life with all of its social meaning and how that worldwide movement against neoliberal austerity failed to go further. And I ask for Pablo's view on what it would take for the kind of organization to emerge that could take root and succeed. We'll also ask for your support for this station and this kind of programming when our program returns in just a moment. Okay, it's a great pleasure today to be able to introduce Pablo Abufon, philosopher, translator, writer, activist, all those things and member of the Movimiento Solidaridad in Chile and director of Alternativo Institute for Anti-Capitalist Studies. Pablo is going to be speaking today on the subject with the title, Broken Timelines, Strategic Lessons from Latin American Revolts to Neo-Fascism and Back. Take thanks, it, Bob. Take it thanks Bob. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bob and Susie and also Rohan for uh, organizing this event. It's, uh, it's really wonderful to be here at UCLA. I've been doing this this talk and, and talking to people here in the U.S. for the past month, uh, a couple of times before in other cities. And one of the things that I felt that it's off, it's to talk about strategy and revolution in a context that is so far from revolution. But it also feels that it's uh, the most important time to talk about it. We're coming out of several defeats of revolts or mass protests and mobilizations that eventually could have led to revolutions or radical transformations, but they didn't. And so I think it's precisely the moment to talk about this. And so this is why this talk is guided by, by a question, which is what we can learn from the series of revolts that took place in Latin America in the past five years. And of course, it's a tragic question because we're asking it after those defeats, or at least after our revolts were paralyzed by the power of the ruling elites and, and the status quo in our countries. And I want to begin with two quotes. One of October 8th, 2019, it says, Chile is a true oasis amid a troubled Latin America. And then 12 days later, October 20th, 2019, we are at war against a powerful, relentless enemy 
who has no respect for anyone or anything, who is willing to use violence and crime without any limits, even when it involves the loss of human lives, who is willing to burn our hospitals, our subway stations, our supermarkets with the, with the only purpose of producing the greatest possible harm to all Chileans. They are at war with all of us Chileans of goodwill who want to live under a democracy with liberty and peace. Both of these statements, the one about the oasis and the one about the, the being at war against a powerful enemy, are by the same person, Sebastián Piñera, one of the richest men in Chile, two times president and longtime defender of the economic social policies of the Chilean dictatorship. Now we may also add dead. He died in a helicopter crash some weeks ago. So, of course, the question arises, what happened between the 8th and the 20th of October? And people have called it many things, social explosion, estallido social, rebellion, some even say revolution, but I think that the most precise name is popular revolt. A revolt that mobilized the masses of the Chilean people. After the government announced a hike in the public transport fare in Santiago, young high school students began flooding the subway station and jumping over the turnstiles as a sign of protest. But high school students and college students have a reduced fare in Chile, so why were they protesting? What moved young students who organized massive calls to evade and not pay the subway? It was a powerful mix of solidarity with their communities that were being affected by this change, and of course a rage, a rage against the repressive legislation that criminalized high school students who were protesting in, the, in, in their high schools. After a few days of students protesting in the subway, more people started to join, older people, and eventually you could hear people chanting El Pueblo Unido Jamás Será Vencido, the people united will never be defeated. And I remember thinking that that was different. It was something else. Something was changing with this dynamics of the student protest. It was not just another student protest about a particular issue. It was something deeper. By October 18th, in Santiago and soon after all of Chile had changed. The government shut the subway down and literally thousands had to walk home. And that turned out to be a wonderful way of creating the conditions for a mass protest. And then it happened. A young woman was shot in her leg by the riot police. Tear gas grenades were shot towards protesters in the streets. Water cannons tried to disperse spontaneous demonstrations downtown. The memory of a people is not simply the sum of the memories that individuals carry as their personal biographies. Memory is a collective activity. And the people of Chile remember all those times we were shot at. In 1907, in the mines up north, when over 10,000 workers and their families were massacred by the army. In 1969, in the south, when people who had lost their homes during an earthquake occupied a plot of land to build their houses, and they were evicted and some of them killed. And of course, from 1973 to 1990, tens of thousands were either tortured, killed, or disappeared during the Pinochet dictatorship. And of course, there's not enough time to list the times that agents of the state have killed members of indigenous communities, the Mapuche, the Ona, Rapanui, and others. So on October 18th, the Chilean people reacted because they remembered what happens when the cops start shooting. But it's not just the memory of state violence or at least explicit violence. It's also the memory of living without dignity. The use of the word dignity in Latin America has a particular social meaning. To live in a dignified home without dirt floors, to be paid a dignified wage to feed your family, to live a dignified life as the eight-hour day movement proclaimed in the 19th century. That day, October 18th, 2019, Chile remembered in a sudden spark of collective anger the past 30 years of neoliberal transformations that had made their lives the target of an unregulated market and an undemocratic political system. Since the return of the so-called democratic governments after the dictatorship, Chile has been a paradise for the rich and hell for the poor, a segregated society in which there seems to be two sets of institutions in all domains of life, wonderful private schools for the rich, defunded dying schools for the poor. And the same with housing, healthcare, the pension system, culture, etc. How do working class people survive in Chile? Using credit cards provided not only by banks, but also by department stores and supermarkets. And I'm sure that sounds familiar. 
Food and clothes paid in 12 installments, if you can afford paying every month. For 30 years, since the end of the dictatorship, Chile has been hailed as an economic miracle, reducing poverty, increasing per capita income, building shiny freeways, and allowing millions to access higher education. And all of that is, is true. But what is also true is a darker truth. Household debt, high inequality, poor health due to long hours in one, two, sometimes three jobs, not to mention urban segregation and environmental destruction. Crucially, both the dictatorship and the democratic administrations have weakened the once powerful labor movement, leaving no space for political representation besides the parties of the rich and the powerful. So the toxic combination of neoliberal policies was waiting to explode. Returning to those two quotes, what happened between the 8th and the 20th of October 2019? Strangely, 30 years happened. We remembered 30 years in a split second because we couldn't take it anymore. This, I think, is what it takes to spark a revolt, an unsolved crisis, an unresponsive government, and the collective memory of a people. Apparently, memory needs no time to do its work. It's as if the past was suddenly present in every action, moving a whole community towards a confrontation, because this is not a memory with no conflict. In fact, it is the memory of conflict, of class conflict. For the past five years, we've been living in a period of turmoil in Latin America. Right before Chile, something similar happened in Ecuador, after the government announced a cut in fuel subsidies. Cities, cities exploded. The organized indigenous movement, together with young people protesting in the streets, were able to stop the government. And all of this happened in the context of a long economic crisis that turned a pink tide country into another neoliberal repressive government. Soon after, 2021, Colombia had its own revolt after the right-wing government announced a tax reform. And the national strike paralyzed the country again, young urban workers and students that protested that particular reform, but also decades of state and paramilitary violence and neoliberal policies. Peru has also been mobilizing for years against corruption and for an improvement of living conditions. And 2022 saw a massive movement that ended up with a coup and over a year of violent and repressive government. But it's not just Latin America. Mass protests against police and racist violence in the U.S., violent confrontations with an illegitimate government in Haiti, mass mobilizations in Lebanon, a near-revolution in Sudan, and more recently, a global movement against Israel's genocidal aggression against the Palestinian people. So there's clearly something going on, and I want to try to find some common threads in this mess. First of all, we see a time of protests becoming riots and riots becoming national revolts. Violence is not a taboo anymore, or at least it's not something that is exclusively in the hands of state agents. Political violence becomes a tool to open the way for repressed dreams and contained anger. And just like in May 1968 that began in Paris and spread across the world, the barricades blocked the streets in order to open the way towards new possibilities. Second, the main actors of these current revolts are very different from the one who took part in similar movements in years past. People's participation is not mainly based on union membership or political allegiance. Now it's the urban poor, both the totally marginalized, as well as the middle class in the process of being impoverished. Unions, parties, and to some extent social movements are there sometimes, but not as the main force, but as a segment of society that is dragged by the storm. It's a crucial segment, unions, parties, and social movements. They provide the explicit memory of past struggles and contribute to identifying the pressing issues by pointing in the direction of their demands. Healthcare, education, housing, and also in the case of Chile, a new constitution. But the bulk of the revolt is made up of people who care about improving their lives immediately and protesting those who are perceived as the cause of the problem, which most of the time points to the government and politicians in general. Third, we really don't know what will ignite the fire. We know that it always happens on fragile ground and inflammable ground, but the spark can be, as in Chile, the price of the subway fare, or in, as in Colombia, tax reform or other government announcements. We know that neoliberal reforms have paved the way for a precarious life and a radical disconnect between the public policies and how people actually live. 
But some of these revolts also happened in countries where these protests were not against the established effects of neoliberalism, but about against the implementation of neoliberal policies themselves. And fourth, the occupation of streets, squares, and other public places is a common theme. This tactic, of course, has been very present since 2011 wave of protests in Spain, Chile, the US, Tunisia, Egypt, and others. And compared to other rebellious moments in history, the occupation of public space is not simply the stage of the battles, but one of the goals of the movement. Being there, staying there, is a sign of resistance in itself. And this is relevant because we have to remember that we're talking about mass protests of mostly non-union and non-party population, that is largely leaderless movements. And labor struggles take place or are closely linked to the workplace and there the adversary is the boss or the corporation. On his hand, political struggle takes place in the institutions and the use of public space is a way to reinforce the power or legitimacy of one party over another. But during Latin American revolts, protesters had no other place than the streets and no other adversary than the state itself as the counterpart of an entire society. In the spirit of providing a broader understanding of what the Latin American revolts mean, I think that we can interpret all these common threads as being part of the same historical process, namely the current moment in a long crisis in how capitalism has organized the way we reproduce ourselves as a society. In other words, it's a crisis in social reproduction. And here I understand social reproduction in the sense that Marx used this phrase as the reproduction of the entirety of social relations or a social metabolism based on human labor and our relationship with the external world. Of course, I'm aware that there's an entire field of study, social reproduction theory, and there's a debate in that context. But in this context, I understand social reproduction as including both production of commodities and production of labor force that is commonly referred to as reproduction. So going back, this crisis, many have said, is multiple. It involves economic, environmental, geopolitical, gender, and cultural relations. From the point of view of macroeconomics and global finances, the 2008 crisis, of course, is its closest origin. But from the standpoint of social reproduction in general, this is a crisis that's been ongoing since at least the 70s. And I want to mention some, uh, what I think are, long-term tendencies in the period. Economically, the rate of profit, which is the driver of productive investment and economic growth under capitalism, has not recovered its levels for decades. And this is one of the reasons that explained what we all call neoliberalism. That is a frontal attack on the living and working conditions of the global working class in order to defend and increase profits. Environmentally, we are all aware of the impact of 20th century industrial capitalism and there's no reason to expect that this will change in the foreseeable future. Geopolitically, the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of global capitalism, as apparently the only alternative, has given way to an unstable global order in which no inch of the world escapes the rabid competition for commodifying and owning every aspect of our lives, which in turn has led to a state of permanent and total war, even if there's times of relative peace in this or in that continent. In terms of gender and sexual relations, the traditional heterosexual and patriarchal roles for the reproduction of family or so and social order have been gravely hurt by profound transformations in the way we understand our bodies, our identities, and the very idea of family. And this has been produced both by transformations in the labor market and changes, changes in how capitalism organizes day-to-day -day reproduction of human beings in particular. Finally, in cultural terms, I just want to mention the fragmentation and isolation of the working class due to changes in, in the international division of work, of labor, as the cause of an explosion in the way we understand ourselves as a society, which has introduced at the same time the experience of a global society and a strengthening of individualism and chauvinism. This is all wonderful, so let's make it worse. Yes. One of the crucial effects of the current moment of this global crisis is that it has produced a world in which there's no stability. Apparently, there's no stable tendency, but instability itself. And there was a time during the 90s that in my country, every, everyone thought that we were living in a calm and cool moment. And this may be the case in other countries for some years. 
but the turbulent years of the world since 2008 are evident everywhere. We've mentioned the way some countries and some societies have re responded to this crisis. We see social movements, political parties, and mass protests, which are in line with traditional interpretations of progressive radical leftist movements. And of course, that makes sense. They've all been demanding justice, dignity, equality, and freedom from oppression and exploitation. But this world in crisis has engendered something else, which grew silently for some time and is now proudly living the time of its life. I'm talking about the emergence of a new right-wing movement, whether we call it alt-right, neo-fascism, post-fascism, or something else. I think it is reasonable to say that the new right is in itself a response to the crisis in the same way that the feminist, environmentalist, anti-colonial, and socialist movements are a response to the crisis. While leftist movements are looking to overcome the crisis in a progressive and sometimes revolutionary direction, the new right is a conservative, authoritarian, and nationalistic response to it, looking to reestablish some mythical past of order through the power of bullets, Bibles, and borders. And I want to point out that this, this idea that the right wing, this new right, is a response to the crisis is a way to say that we shouldn't and we cannot blame in any way the anti-colonial, feminist, or indigenous movements for the emergence of a new fascism. It's not that they are, they, of course, they respond to that because they hate women and hate uh, migrants and hate uh, minorities, but it's not that that made them emerge in this new moment. While classic fascism imagined a return to a golden age of European empires and capitalist expansion, these neo-fascist movements seem to imagine a return to the golden age of neoliberal expansion of the 90s, where no migrants were stealing your job, where no Muslims were living in your neighborhood, where no feminists were questioning your jokes, and no communists were demanding public services. Of course, you've seen this face to face. Donald Trump is one of the best examples of this new right, but also Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in Hungary, Milley in Argentina, and probably the worst of all, Netanyahu in Palestine. And there are more coming, Le Pen in France, Cast in Chile, among others. They are winning relevant battles in the cultural war. They are promoting a vengeful and criminalizing view of the revolts and other mass protests and erasing whatever changes could be won by them. And I want to try to connect everything I've said so far, and I hope I won't let you down. How can we explain that only a few years after we experienced a period of mass revolts with mostly democratic and socialist demands, now we see that the world is on the verge of experiencing a wave of neo-fascist governments? Adding to this the genocide of Palestinians by Israel, supported by the US and Europe, which is very explicitly guided by an ethno-nationalistic, neoliberal, and authoritarian government, which makes sense when you see the connections between the new right movements and Zionism in general. Let's try to go back to the revolt in Chile. After millions took to the streets and popular assemblies were formed all around the country that gathered people to defend themselves from attacks by the police or to talk about the new constitution, the society we wanted to live in, after we had a democratic process to draft a new constitution, which turned out to be the most progressive constitution in the world, and it was rejected. After that, the neo-fascist candidate, Cast, almost wins the presidential election. He actually won the first round against Boric. The constitution was rejected in 2022 by an overwhelming majority of 62% of the population rejected that, pro that the most progressive constitution. And now the main national concern as in other places, seems to be crime and migration, and not, definitely not, social justice or democracy or the struggle against neoliberalism. So the question that many of us in Latin America are asking right now is, how can we explain this weird outcome? And I will give you just a short version of my answer. I think it's because those revolts didn't end up becoming revolutions. And that happens because in politics, as well as in war and love and other domains of life, there's no guarantee of any outcome, and it's all dependent on the concrete historical possibilities that are at the disposal of the actors involved in conflict. And the problem that we face is that those concrete historical possibilities 
are strongly determined by the crisis that I described. And during the accelerated time of a revolt in Chile and Colombia and other places, there's a short window of opportunity when those possibilities that are already established by this, the historical conditions can be broadened, but there's a limit to that. Revolts are not all powerful and there are things that they cannot overcome. And I want to concentrate on those things that the recent revolts in Latin America weren't able to overcome or that they were lacking and try to extract a few strategic lessons from them. I already mentioned that revolts in Latin America were populated by the new faces of the global working class. Young people, precarious workers, women, indigenous, urban poor, and mostly with no political affiliation. During the 20th century, the collective action of the working class was typically organized around labor unions and political parties. This scenario was changed by the economic and social transformations of the past decades. And in many countries, military dictatorships and the physical destruction of unions and parties transformed the way that the working class organized itself. But in others, it was a slower but equally striking reordering of political institutions, social relations, and the organization of labor. Also, the privatization of public services and the capitalist plunder of the commons has reorganized our lives. So in those societies where neo neoliberalism has gone all the way, like in Chile, the collective subjectivities we knew in the 20th century are missing. And I want to say this also in simple terms. There's no party of the working class, but not because the working class has disappeared. No, what happens is that the working class has changed. It doesn't look the same way. It doesn't act the way it used to. We are still the ones who create all the wealth and the ones who are being exploited so that the bosses can have their surplus value. But of course, and we know this because social scientists and philosophers had taught us, everything is more complicated than just saying that. I think that it, it's historically accurate to say that wherever there was a successful revolution, there was a party or some form of political organization that we shared strategies and tactics. The Russian Revolution, of course, is the best example, but the same can be said of China, Cuba, Nicaragua, and to up some, some point, Chile during the popular unity government, whatever we can think now of those revolutions. And revolutions have the stubborn tendency of being events that demand a very clear vision and some sort of strong leadership. Revolutions go against everything that is established, so they don't happen spontaneously. They are what Walter Benjamin called an emergency break, a way to violently stop the destructive train of capitalist progress. And the metaphor has a particular meaning. Someone has to pull that break. And in the classic socialist tradition, that collective someone is the party or the political organization. Uh, but there's no revolutionary party like those we knew in the 20th century because the political, social, and cultural landscape is not the same. Some people believe that this means that we should discard the very idea of a party. But I believe that political organizations are so fundamental in capitalist society in particular, that even if we call them something else, we will be building new kinds of parties anyway. Organizations that are meant to articulate a vision, coordinate revolutionary or transformative activity, and carry the memory of past struggles beyond any defeat. I think this is the first strategic lesson from Latin American revolts, that mass movements will benefit immensely from that sort of political mediation and organization that we have called parties that could have another name, but, but that amid intense moments like revolts, works operates as a strategic operator, in the words of Daniel Ben Said. Political organizations are a collective actor that can overcome tactical defeats, like the rejection of the constitutional uh, draft in order to continue the struggle for strategic goals and quickly respond to the changes in the speed and the direction of history. And now the second lesson, what are those strategic goals that could take the revolt beyond its own limits? Why is it that progressive governments that follow some of these revolts like Gabriel Boric in Chile have not been able to stop the neo-fascist storm? Because we see progressive or leftist governments in Chile, Colombia, before at some point in Argentina. And again, 
forgive my simplicity, I think it's because the current crisis of capitalism cannot be overcome by a few reforms that don't confront the fundamental problems. The situation is so radical that it has to be faced with radical transformations. And in the classic language of leftist politics, this set of transformations is what we call a program, which of course is not the same as a platform for a particular candidate or a plan for a government, but an alternative vision of society. And something weird happens with time and reality in revolutionary programs. is that which we aspire to, that horizon we want to reach, the future that is still not here, appears more real than the existing world of today. That's why reality explodes and time jumps over itself. It's as if reality opens itself to let another world enter. And in that process, the sad total enthusiasm and exhilaration that reality is going beyond itself. The extent of the crisis we're experiencing has radical implications. If the normal development of capitalism has brought us here, then we need an anti-capitalist program, not simply more taxes and more redistribution of wealth while keeping the same structure of production, the labor market, etc. The sacred institution of private property must be challenged and common ownership through expropriation must be understood as a democratic necessity. Controlling the banks and financial institution is key in order to use wealth for the common good and stop the infinite drive for profits via interests and debt. By now, it's very clear that private corporations cannot lead the ecological transitions that we need in order to survive as a species. Well then, governments and societies and countries and people will have to force them to do it or else become public enemies of mankind. On the other hand, we must reduce our working hours while keeping our wages so that everyone has a job. If robots and computers and artificial intelligence end up reducing the time needed to produce something, then that process should not lead to downsizing the workforce, but to distributing the remaining hours among workers. And I can hear your objections and my own. This is utopian or simply impossible because all this goes against the power of the capitalist class. And that's true. But it's also true that we are facing a terrible dilemma. If we don't confront the power of the capitalist class and pull the emergency brake, we're heading straight to an authoritarian nightmare, not only for the poor and marginalized of the world, but also for everyone living in Western democratic societies. But living there, oppose the Zionist genocide against Palestinians, oppose the expansion of capitalist extraction of common goods, and support even the most basic human rights for people. And the way, for instance, universities in some countries have responded to pro-Palestinian protests is, I think, is, a, is an expression of this, that it's not just the poor and the marginalized of the world, but it's also professors and students and middle-class people in Western democratic rich societies. So how do we confront the power of the capitalist class? Of course, this is the main question and the main strategic lesson from Latin American revolts in the face of its own defeats. I don't have the entire answer, but I do know that we need to fight power with popular power. That we need to turn our isolated dreams, aspirations, and organizations into a struggle for power in the broadest sense of the word, including, but not limited, to institutional power. If the main threat for the popular classes today is the rise of the extreme right, then our duty is to identify all the ways by which it is possible to stop and combat this regressive process. And I believe that this can happen mainly through, one, a resurgence of the demands that can get the working class out of the growing precariousness it is experiencing, so material transformations, and two, a political force that connects these solutions with a narrative of deep transformation that goes to the root, that breaks with the prevailing political and economic regime. If the neo-fascist project represents a way out of the crisis with conservative, authoritarian, and nationalistic characteristics that reinforce the regime, then the path for the left and the social movements in Latin America and elsewhere will have to be a path of social struggles and class conflict in an anti-capitalist, feminist, and eco-socialist perspective. 
aimed at exposing the causes of the crisis, while at the same time solving its most immediate symptoms with short-term material solutions. Without this combination of mass struggle and material solutions in the struggle for power, the extreme right will continue to have a free hand to convince the popular sectors that the only solution to the crisis is to rely on their agenda of cutthroat competition between the poor and the poorest. The most important question now is how to turn these lessons into effective political action. But this is beyond my scope, and it depends on the concrete reality of each country or region of the world, and I'm happy to hear what you, your thoughts about this. I just wanted to offer an interpretation of the current moment and open the present to the possibilities of a transformed future. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Susie Wiseman, and I'm here to ask for your support and your sponsorship of this program, Beneath the Surface, and this station, KPFK. We're here during the fun drive, and this is the time when we ask you listeners to support the radio station. And I should say sponsor it because it's a listener-sponsored radio station. And if you value the kind of programming that I've been bringing to you for more than 40 years... I'm going to ask you to please put your money where your ears are and go to your phones and call up at 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK or go online to www.kpfk.org and pledge your support. It costs money to keep free speech radio on the air. We don't have commercials. It's not a commercial station. Uh, and we don't sell your data anywhere, but we do ask you way too much, in fact, to cough up support for the radio station. And I'm asking you to do that now. I try consistently to bring you the, uh, the best voices on the hottest topics. And I specialize in covering Russia, the former Soviet Union, experiments in social change, labor, and the economy. And I put a lot of time and effort into the shows, and we don't come to you th that often to ask for you to support that effort. We're all volunteers. None of us are paid. And um, I've had a pretty bad year in terms of health, so I haven't been here as many times as I would have liked to. But all is looking up now, and I'm asking you for your support at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Please dig deep into your pockets and give all you can. Thank you so much. I appreciate your listenership, and thank you for supporting this program and this radio. Our next presenter is uh, Susie Weissman. She's an emeritus professor of politics at St. Mary's College in Northern California. Her work is mainly on Russian and Soviet studies, as well as post-Soviet studies. Uh, she's author, famously, a political biography of Victor Serge. And she's longtime radio and podcast host of a weekly show on KPFK called Beneath the Surface. It's also Jackman Radio now. So uh, without further ado, Susie. Thank you, Pablo. That was great. That was really good. And I don't really want to make a presentation per se, but I just have some comments. And I think, of course, you raise all of the key questions. But I just wanted to say that 2019 was so spectacular. And for me, and for many others here too, to see that wave of revolts that went so far. So I was at some point, you know, trying to cover as many of them as I could on my radio show. But, you know, these were revolts against the status quo, but they were also revolts against austerity. And I really very much like your formulation that they were revolts about dignity and also about cutting off the future. So we saw protests in Hong Kong, India, Chile, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, Spain, France, the Czech Republic, Russia, Malta, Algeria, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Sudan, and that isn't even a comprehensive list. I was trying to put them all together here and I couldn't. But social unrest broke out 
repeatedly in unexpected places and for unanticipated reasons. And so it was almost like there was this wave as, as we've described it. And it was, um, you know, like links in a chain. But then several of the links became dismantled. So yes, you raise all of those questions. I think they're incredibly important. And I also have to say, like for me, for, on the Chile question, that was just a breath of fresh air because for so many of us, I had been married to a Chilean and literally living in the aftermath of the coup for 20, 30 years and thinking, you know, where did that energy go? Is it possible to repress it forever? And then 2019 happened, and you participated in it, and I hope in, you know, questions that people ask more about what that was like. But um, the other thing is about the rise of the far right, because it didn't come about because of these revolts. We saw that in 2015 and 16 in Europe, it, it predates it. But I see, like I look at what's going on in Russia today and the rise of the far right, this shows the strength of the protest against the status quo and also the weakness at the heart of capitalism and of the regimes. That doesn't give us answers, but it does kind of show that, you know, we're doing something right. So, and then I really also wanted to say that I loved your formulation about dignity in the broadest sense, because when people think, okay, so what are you struggling for? We say we're struggling for a world in which dignity can soar. And it takes you away from all of these fossilized slogans that most people reject. So, all right, all of that. The question, one of the questions that I want to uh, ask you to raise, one of the things that crushed all of that energy was the pandemic. And that didn't just happen in Chile, but in Chile they took special advantage of the lockdown to make it even more severe and longer lasting as a way to prevent further mobilization. And it was very successful. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the role of the pandemic in changing the mood in a way, because we also had at the same time in Chile, unlike anywhere else, for those of you who are following it, these protests broke out over a rise in subway fares. And it was high school and, and young people that started it, and then it just ignited everywhere. But it was about so many other things as well. One thing that it didn't seem to be about was creating a constituent assembly to write a radical new constitution. But somewhere in the middle of that protest, that demand emerged for constituent assembly. Chile had been suffering under Pinochet's constitution that was illegally imposed in 1980 and prevented any kind of real reform in so many ways. So people, that resonated. And then, so then there's the question, I don't want you to spend all that time going over how it was trounced. But it's significant that it was trounced and the moment was lost. And now, of course, the new right-wing response to that, the new constitution was also defeated. So they're literally left with the Pinochet constitution and some tinkering around reforming it. But it's sort of like after all of that, you're back to the same thing. So I want you to also talk about that. And then, you know, the last question to ask about all of that, I think, is what role climate change plays in all of this um, in terms of migration, but also in terms of the rise of the right and everything else. And that's way more than I wanted to say. But the final big, big question is about leadership in the party. And it just seems to me like one of the things that made the, all of those revolts so exciting is that there was sort of horizontalism, that they were profoundly democratic, even here at Occupy, you know, that you would go to the general assemblies. And I said, this is an interesting new form of organization. This is sort of like the Soviets. But then somebody would say, but what's the program? Where are they going to go from there? So leaderless movements are profoundly democratic and in reaction to all of the other sort of social experiments that came before it, but they have their limits. It's not new that you get spontaneous revolutionary movements that don't or can't, you know, take advantage of these specific moments to carry it forward. And so you've set yourself in this paper a kind of gigantic task and try to figure out how we achieve a different outcome. And it helps us understand also how the working class has changed, how the fragmentation of the working class. And it's even if you look at today's New York Times op-ed section, you have the one column by David Brooks, who said he thought for sure that the Democrats could win back the working class because of the economic success of Biden. And then Paul Krugman saying the same thing. And then they go, but what happened? What is it? And of course, he thinks it's culture, religion, traditional values. I don't know. You know, that's just to become 
reformists, not revolutionaries. So I think that, you know, this is sort of rambling, but it's just a question of way. The thing that revolutionaries who were successful always did was to struggle for reforms that always pushed the system to its limit. And because I'm always an optimist and we're living in pretty dark times right now, I think that we shouldn't forget the bright spot in the world stage is right here in the United States and specifically right here in Los Angeles. It's We're in February, but we just came out of a hot summer of strikes that were really, really inspirational. And they were incredible organizing victories. And, you know, I talked to some of those strikers and they were more conscious than anything I'd ever imagined. Also, they understood their own role and they spoke in 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 terms of class struggle and revolution and everything else. And I'm talking about, you know, here we had the UPS almost strike, we had auto workers strike, we had writers and actors, hotel workers, and so many more. And even before the pandemic, we had the Red for Ed movement all across the United States. And so I think that the overall issue in all of these strikes is that during this period, managers lost their legitimacy. And people were really pissed off that they first did have enough money because of the CARES package. But after that, the middle class or office workers learned to work at home and the essential workers learned that their lives were expendable. And so, you know, this was in a period of corporate profits soaring, but the cost of living also did so. So winning strikes and garnering widespread public support was a gigantic Plus, but it hasn't yet been transformed in really increasing the level of unionization, and we've yet to see any kind of political formation in the way that you talked about it. So it fits your model in a way. It's a high point. It points to the successes and the limits, but the real key question is how to break out and advance. And of course, you can all, we can chant that old slogan, the only solution, revolution, but it's just so much bigger than that these days. So that's all I really have to say. Well, thanks, uh, Susie. You raised very relevant points that, of course, I, I couldn't cover on my talk. I don't think I have many responses because I think I agree 100% with everything you said, but I think there are a couple of questions. So one was about the, how the political consciousness of the people could shift so fast from one moment to another. And I think that, at least in Chile, it seems that one particular thing was very important, and this connects with what Susie was asking, the pandemic was very relevant. Because the revolt in Chile started in October 2019, and even up to March in 2020, we were still in the streets. And popular and community assemblies were still organizing and, and working in their communities. And so it, it wasn't stopping, really. People were going and protesting every Friday in Plaza Dignidad, Dignity Square, Dignity Plaza. <coughs> and so when the pandemic hit, we saw two things. One is that we were physically removed from those places where we met and where we organized and where we were active, the streets, the squares, the plazas. And I think that's, that's very relevant for how it produced a shift. <coughs> and then that lockdown, the fear of the pandemic that it was instilled in people by the media, etc. Of course, the pandemic is a serious thing and we had to respond to that. And that was for us, at least the organized parts of some movements. We, we were also in a dilemma because some people were saying, well, the government is using this as a way to paralyze the movement. And of course they were doing that, but they also were responding to the pandemic, right? I mean, the government had the responsibility to provide care and to cover for cost of living for people who had lost their jobs and, and vaccine, et cetera. And so we were in sort of a dilemma that was weird because you know that conspiracy theory about the pandemic was everywhere, not just in the French right-wing movement, but also in the left. So the pandemic shifted the priorities of people. It was not about social justice, neoliberalism, or, or even the, the constitution, but it was about surviving the pandemic. And that is, if you have a movement of millions of people who are not organized, I mean, that they are not members of a group that is actively involved in something or like continuing debates 
during the time of the pandemic, but people were going back to their homes and back to their daily lives without protests, without being part of a, another group. That means that they can forget very quickly that they were involved in that if priorities shift so quickly. That was one of the things that had that effect. But then I don't think that there's a, such a huge shift in the political consciousness in Latin America. We can also read all the past years as a process of, of being against, of opposition to everything that is presented as a solution. So in Chile, at least, we had a very intense electoral period. We first had the, the referendum in order to approve or reject the idea of having a new constitution. And that was in October 2020, already in the pandemic. 80% of the voters approved having a new constitution. But you can read that as being against the old constitution. So that was the first rejection, in a way, even though the, the approval, the approved one. And then we had to elect the representatives to the Constitutional Council Convention. People rejected the traditional parties and politicians, and they elected independent candidates and social movement candidates and left-wing candidates. And so we had an, a majority of anti-neoliberal representatives in the, in the convention. There was another thing that people were re rejecting, because it's not that they... I mean, some of the people who were elected were just regular people. There are a couple of examples, but a woman, a lady, that she wore a Picasso suit to the protest and became famous because of a viral TikTok video where she was dancing and then she fell, she fell down, and that was it, and she became a symbol. And then people would took pictures with them in the streets. Everybody would see her and say hi. So she became a symbol of just... The revolt as a moment, not, not even with any kind of political content. Yeah. And she was not a political person. She had to learn a lot during the process. So that means that electing someone like that, it's not really that people were voting for her or the ideas she represented. They were mostly rejecting those who were from the traditional parties. And then, of course, the constitution was rejected. The, the mood was still for rejection. It was also that uh, they were rejecting the way the government was dealing with issues of daily life, but also the way they were not very clear about supporting this new constitution. I'm talking about the Boric government. And then a couple of other elections. Well, Boric didn't win the first round. It was the fascist who won. But then in the second round, we all organized to reject the fascist. People who hadn't voted for Boric before then voted for Boric. So we see in a way in Chile, at least, that there is a constant, that it's the rejection of everything that is offered as a solution for our problems. So mm. no one has the ability to present a credible solution. It's not a, like a problem of what people think. It's about that th those solutions don't really solve anything, right? Um, that's why I think this new second, I don't think it's even a progressive type, but the progressive governments in Latin America right now, they're not really progressive, like Boric, now, we can say that the Boric government is not a progressive government because it's basically implementing all the, the platform of the right wing, of Piñera even. And that's why he, support is so low in the public opinion. So yeah, I would, I would say that there are two contradictory tendencies, depending on what you're looking at, that there's a quick shift of the priorities of the people towards security, safety, uh, the economic uh, survival, but then at the same time, there's a constant in that political consciousness. But we're not exactly in the same place, even though we sort of come full circle that we, at least in Chile, we have the same constitution. We're not exactly in the same spot. We're, we've moved forward. There's the, this experience, at least. And then on the question of organizations of the working class and then the party leadership, I, I just noticed this, but well, it's about the question of the party, but it's not about one party. Right? I think it's about the, the idea of a kind of organization that brings people together and has a particular consequence, I think, is that all the struggles for reforms, the winning the strikes, movements that confront industrial projects that are going to be detrimental to the ecosystems, all those victories are experienced now as separate things. It doesn't appear to be... a, a something that connects all of them. So I think that the idea of parties or political organizations is how to 
how can those victories can be experienced as part, as part of the same process? Because now they're seen as separate things. And then I think that the idea of a party is not the kind of party that we need today. It's not, of course, definitely not the Republican or Democratic Party. Neither the revolutionary parties of our countries, they self-proclaimed revolutionaries, right? right. We, we're, we're not sure that those ideas or those proposals are revolutionary for today. But I think that for me, at least, maybe it's a bit abstract, but for me, the kind of party that we need is an organization that can be inhabited by the people. That is not something that you go to a meeting and then you're out of the party when you're home, back home. It's something that you experience every day. It's like a 24-7 experience of being organized with others. And not just about a particular issue or even all the issues together. Even those interpersonal and social relationships. The old mass parties of the working class, for most people, were not about being in the leadership or having a particular job within the party. It was just about being part of it and maybe buying the press and going to the cultural activities they had and educating themselves within the party. But now we have well, the old working class would educate itself in the party. Now we have universities and colleges for everyone as long as you, can, as you get into debt. And that's another important shift, I think, at least in Chile. We see that access to higher education provides a new consciousness of being educated that you don't need anything else. For workers in the late 19th century, there was no other place to educate yourself or, or having access to culture than the labor union theater or that kind of social institution. So when I say an organization that we can inhabit, I'm talking about that kind of idea of a culture of being organized with others and then experiences the victories of a movement that it's thousands of miles away as my own victory. Uh, I think that's the kind of movement that we need that uh, common spirit. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Pablo Abufong. Thanks also to executive producer Robert Brenner, to producer-director Melissa Figueroa, organizer and engineer Rohan Advani, and editor Juliana Gota, and Gary Baca in Master Control. You can listen to this and other archive shows as well as subscribe to the podcast at kpfk.org. Click Audio Archives and scroll down to Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. More information on programs and guests are on our Facebook page. That's Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. And you've been listening to Beneath the Surface on KPFK Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond, streaming live and archived at kpfk.org. Please remember to pledge your support for KPFK at 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK during this critical time. And thank you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. leap year and following this first fun drive of the year kpfk is making a great leap we're relocating our operations temporarily from our historic north hollywood home to a spot in glendale about seven miles east kpfk was launched in 1959 with the great leap of faith that listeners would sustain its operations with their donations and as we make the figurative leap across the Hollywood Hills and the L.A. River, your continued donations will assist us in making what we hope will be a soft landing. Our drive continues until March 8th, and with the extra day in February, you have expanded opportunities to show your support by donating online at kpfk.org or by calling in your donation at 818-985-5735 and pressing option 2. or whatever amount fits your budget affirms your faith in the station that brings you information not easily found elsewhere and that helps your understanding of the issues of the day. Thanks for your support as you listen before you leap to KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. L.A. Theatre Works airs here on KPFK every Sunday evening from 10 p.m. until midnight. Coming up tonight, Darius McReel is bright, well-spoken, and charismatic. But is this recently pardoned ex-con electable? I was there. 
the night Patrick Cragen got shot. What do you mean you were there? I was present. At the murder? Yeah. Eric Stoltz and Chris Butler star in McReel by Stephen Belber. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. That's L.A. Theatre Works coming up here on KPFK tonight at 10 p.m. Hey, this is Aloe Black, and you're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, 98.7 FM, Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM, San Diego County, 99.5 FM, Ridgecrest, China Lake.